I think it's really this acknowledgement and permission to just keep saying, let it happen. Let it happen. Let this grief occur. Whatever comes out of this, let it happen. And the word that I kept coming back to was consent. I was just giving consent to feel what I was feeling, to not try to pretend I wasn't feeling it. Grieving is a sign of living a brave life. And living a brave life, while freeing and empowering, can also, gosh, be leveling and gut-wrenching. Daring to care and being all in means that grief and loss are inevitable, not just possible. If we let it, grief can be a powerful teacher, but first, it usually deconstructs and it disrupts the best laid plans and it can bring us to our knees emotionally and physically, especially if we ignore it or try to dismiss it. Well, let me be clear, grief is going to do whatever it wants. The more you resist it, the more it will rebel and take you out. Respecting grief and all it brings up is essential. And if you consent and give permission to feel through its waves that come and go as it pleases over time, instead of leading with the reflexive response to dodge this pain, know you will rise. You will also be changed for the better. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. Grief is inevitable when you're all in on life and the relationships in it. This is the cost of a life full of love and meaning. And yet, we do not grieve well here in the United States. We actually do not have a good relationship with emotions in general. And a lot of this has to do with decades of messages around what is the quote, correct way to show up in our work and life. Grief is a powerful and important teacher, but the pushback to not feel it or express it is real. You get the mixed messages. On one hand, it's okay to feel your emotions, but then you also hear, and please keep that away from your work. (laughs) But feeling through your grief is a necessity to lead well. And it's especially true right now as the various forms of loss and subsequent grief continue to show up in our lives as we navigate COVID-19, loss of routine, loss of business as usual, loss of business too, loss as we deepen our awareness of how divided we are in our country. Permission to feel the tsunami of grief that comes when it wants and levels how it pleases is actually an important leadership practice. You know leading with vulnerability is the path. And you also feel the pushback from those who think feeling grief and other painful emotions are too personal for professional environments. You also empathize with the sense that consenting to grief to doing what it needs to do in your life may feel like asking for a root canal without anesthesia. And I also know many of you have experienced immense loss and know it's excruciating pain, who have also developed a deep respect for your grief after much wrestling and negotiating and healing. Consenting to grief requires the inner trust you're going to be okay. This is a powerful form of self-leadership where your inner system trusts you to feel through and move through hard things without shutting you down. Instead, 
It relaxes to feel through and learn through grief and loss, knowing this is the best path. This requires a lot of work and support, but you know it's essential to continuing to live and lead a brave life. My guest today, who is also a fellow Minnesotan, knows the many forms of grief really well. And he dared to be all in with feeling through his losses and the losses of others who have touched his life while continuing to step up in all the spaces he leads. Dr. Dean Nelson is the founder and director of the journalism program at Point Loma Nazarene University. He's the founder and host of the annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea, a must-go-to for anyone in the SoCal area. He's also author of Talk to Me, How to Ask Better Questions, Get Better Answers, and Interview Anyone Like a Pro, and author of God Hides in Plain Sight, How to See the Sacred in a Chaotic World. He is also my Sunday school teacher and a leader who cultivates one of the most sacred spaces in my life where I get to practice getting out of my own internal echo chamber. I'm so excited to share this conversation with you and give you a glimmer of what I've experienced weekly for years. Pay attention to how Dean viewed his work while navigating recent and deeply personal losses. Listen closely while he's sharing his choice to empathize, not harden, in the face of a really tragic story he was the first on the scene to cover. And now I'm so honored to welcome Dr. Dean Nelson to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Dean, welcome to the Unburdened Leader podcast. I'm excited to be here. And let's, uh, this, this sounds like a, a wonderful discussion topic and all of that. So yeah, let's, let's get on with it. Well, I, I appreciate you showing up today because I want to, I want to drop you right into a night that stayed with me. Um, a memory has stayed with me of seeing you a cu- couple years ago, you're running your annual writer symposium by the sea. This is a, a an event. I think you're, you've just celebrated 25 years of doing That's this. Right. We bring in yeah. these prolific authors mm-hmm. um, and, and, from all walks of life and you get to interview them for a week and we get to watch you do that. And it's just been an incredible experience and an incredible rich um, kind of impact you've had on our community. But I remember sitting in the audience the night that you were interviewing Krista Tippett, like the Krista Tippett from On Being. That was an amazing night. (laughs) And and also I get to know you and full disclosure, you're my Sunday school teacher. (laughs) So I've known you for several years. Um, and you cultivate may, may I just say that oh. being your Sunday school teacher and having a therapist and someone who has her own therapy practice in the room <laughs> while I'm saying stuff, I every now and then I think, oh boy, Rebecca's just going to think that. Well, what a moron. So I'm just saying it goes no. both ways, my friend. <laughs> um, you know, no, I think. Well, that's a whole nother conversation about therapists speak. So thank you for being so gracious with me in your space. It's, it's been a sacred space for me and, and getting to know you and have your, how your leadership's impacted me. And so many, I see you on the stage interviewing Krista Tippett, having this powerful conversation, but I know that just literally a couple of days earlier, you lost your mom. Mm-hmm. Um, your mom had died and then your father several months before that, you know, and so I'd love for you to share more what was going on with you that night leading publicly while grieving such a personal loss. Yeah, it, that was that was such a, uh, a profound um, time for, for all the reasons you named. Um, but I, w- I would take it even back a couple of days because you're refer you're referencing the Krista Tippett event. But mm-hmm. my mom died on a Sunday night 
And the very next night was my interview with Deepak Chopra. Just some light conversation. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, <laughs> like he and I are just going to talk about the Padres or something, you know, but, um, but he, so I'm, you know, I was already immersed in all of all of this preparation for Deepak Chopra and, and all of, all of the stuff that, you know, you get into with a guy like that. And then the night after that was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Mm-hmm. Where we were going to talk about, uh, we were going to talk about race. We were going to talk about protests. We were going to, we were going to talk about writing, obviously. And then the night after that was Krista Tippett. So it was like um, entering into these really, really deep um, conversations. That actually, because of the way I prepare, I feel like those conversations had already begun. Mm. I was already thinking about them. I, I had already come up with how, what, are, what do I want to talk about with these folks? And so I already had those conversations in my head when, uh, when my mom died. And so I've, I've really thought about what, what was that? What was that week? You know, and, um, and here's the best way I can describe it, Rebecca. And that is, um, you know how some people, uh, take their feelings, their emotions, their experiences, whatever, and they just set them aside for a while. You know. Yes, the, the, I the, do know that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you of all people know people probably who do that. Um, and and the the term I hear every now and then is that they silo their feelings. You know, they mm-hmm. just put them in this silo and say, "Okay, I'll get back to you later." And um, I I can't. I won't or I can't or whatever operate that way. So mm-hmm. rather than set those feelings aside of the loss of my mom, and it wasn't just the loss of my mom, it was all the weeks leading up to that, you know, right. and, and accompanying her as she was clearly dying um, over over the, the previous weeks and, and especially the last few days. So rather than siloing or separating, um, I just... Or I, I want to say I allowed myself, whatever, I just entered fully into it. Hmm. And uh, rather than say, well, I need to just not think about my mom for a while while I interview Krista Tippett. I thought, no, the experience of that was so profound and so deepening that that's going to help inform my conversation with Krista Tippett. That's going to, I'm already in this deep, deep, profound space that, um, might make a deep, profound conversation with her even more significant. So, I, so said, I, I didn't want to pretend. I didn't want to put my shields up. I wanted to enter fully into it. So Yeah. So you didn't want to silo. Correct. And you wanted to enter fully into it. Can you unpack that a little bit more? What did that mean specifically? Like what choices did you make to enter fully into it? I, and again, I think it's so important for listeners to understand you're up front in an auditorium. How, how many people? 1,800 does, people. So it's 1,800 people and you're interviewing these folks that have had a global impact um, on the world too. And so there's just a lot of different energy and tension going on. How did you, what are the things you did to choose to enter in to your grief while leading these public conversations, these public interviews? I, I think it's really um, this acknowledgement and permission to just keep saying, let it happen, let it happen, let, let, this, let this grief occur, let what, whatever comes out of this, let it happen. And, um, and the word that I kept coming back to was consent. 
I was just giving I was just giving consent to feel what I was feeling, to not try to pretend I wasn't feeling it. Um, you know, I, I the other choice I could have made was to put on this uh, very um, this act, you know, where I just wanted to be sound super smart or make the interview super entertaining or whatever. Um, but that just didn't feel very authentic. I, I just thought if I'm going to be on a stage in front of all sorts of people with these really, really deep people like a Deepak Chopra, like a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, like a Krista Tippett, what, what would I be thinking by saying, okay, let's do this sort of kind of Jimmy Fallon kind of uh, um, facade. You know, I just thought, no, if we're going to go deep, I got to be coming from a deep place. And so I, I just did, I didn't want to pretend. That's powerful. And I'm thinking about the word consent and, and just almost the thing of the word permission. You gave yourself yeah. permission to be where you were at and that almost allowed you to show up and lead and be able oh, to interesting. just, that's, yeah, just like, that's what I, that's what I make up. Yeah. So, so I wasn't even thinking of it as leading. I was just thinking of it as living. I, I had this, I had this job to do, which was to do this interview, but then it became more than just, I had this job to do. It became, how do I be my most authentic self so I can bring out the most authentic self of Krista Tippett? Um, mm -hmm. that, that sounds more manipulative than I mean. Um, and, I, and I'm saying that in retrospect, you know, thinking yeah, yeah. about that. But I know that um, I did make an intellectual choice to not pretend nothing was wrong. <laughs> you know, that, that I, I, I just wanted to say, yeah, this is there. Something has happened in my life and I'm just going to I'm going to live with it while I do the next thing. Yeah, it's interesting, too. What you see is you had a job to do. And to me, I see that as your leadership, right? You were leading mm. these conversations and leading us and the audience and, and those in our community that are a part of this incredible movement. Like kind of, this is your Super Bowl week, you know, yeah, in many yeah, ways. It is. And this this decision, this consent, this permission to feel what you're feeling. And in hindsight, seeing that as your truth brought out the best truth in the other Wow. I, that's, no, that's, that's a great way to think about it. I, I hadn't thought about it in that way, but if that's what happened, then fantastic. But, but see, this, this goes way back. I, I learned a long time ago that grief has a job to do. <laughs> it sure does. <laughs> and, and you have to let grief do its job. If, if you don't, it manifests itself in some very bizarre ways. It could be anger. It could be, um, um, addiction. It could be, now I'm talking your language, but, um, but it could be so many things. But if, um, if you don't let grief do what grief needs to do, you're signing up for some trouble. And so I, I feel like I learned that a long, long time ago. And so e even with this uh, season of both my parents dying within just a few months of each other, um, I knew that, uh, I had to let grief do what grief does. So when did you learn this lesson? What, when did grief teach you that it has to do what it's going to do? Cause I talk about grief as it like a, a very unruly adolescent, like mm. it does not like to be told what to do. And the more you try and give it limits, the more it kicks your ass basically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so you just kind of have to give it space to do what it's going to do. Yeah. Um, otherwise, yeah, yeah. cause it won't 
was when. The, the adolescent image is a good one. I use in my just from in my own thinking, I use waves in the ocean, <laughs> where some waves you just they they just kind of come up against you. It, let's say you're standing about waist deep in the ocean, and a wave comes up, and it just kind of nudges you a little bit. <laughs> and then every now and then, a rogue one comes along and just knocks you over and puts you through a spin cycle and you wonder if you're going to come out of it alive and um that's how i that's how i envision um the experience of grief but you asked when i learned that i was i was um uh, that's a good question i but as a much younger person and it wasn't because of um i would say any specific incident maybe it's related to the fact that um I'm not, um, well, this is going to sound so bizarre, but uh, I've, I've, I think about death a lot. And I have since I was a teenager and for, for this reason. I worked as an orderly in an emergency room in Hennepin County General Hospital, your old stomping grounds. Maybe not the hospital, but um, in, in <laughs> Minneapolis. And um, saw people die. Mm. And, and, it, and it, in a very jarring way, removed the myth of, you know, kind of the Hollywood, uh, cue the orchestra, you know, there's justice and there's reconciliation and there's all of this stuff at the end. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just a gunshot wound. Sometimes mm. it's, um, it's a drug overdose. Sometimes it's a car accident. Sometimes it's a heart attack. And you see this often enough. And then I, was a, I worked on an ambulance crew um, for a summer uh, while I was in college. And again, you're just confronted with this all the time. So uh, I guess maybe learning about grief is the reason, I think maybe is the result of learning about the ever presence of death and and wanting to make sure that you live a life that, um, that knows that death is very close. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know if those two things are related, but they feel related. I'm just thinking of being exposed to physical death, like actual the, the loss of life at a very mm -hmm. young, at a, at a developmental season of your yeah. life, right? Yeah. So I was probably and, 15 and or 17 when I first saw it. And you've always been a curious person too, mm -hmm. and always, you know, so that that makes sense. And I'm I'm also just wondering too. There's been touchstones of other big losses in your life, right? Um, I met you after this happened, but you lost a brother to ALS. Correct. Um, yeah, and, which is just a horrifying way to die. A horrible and horrifying way to die. You basically melt to death. And that was, that was just a, yeah, that, that was, that's a wretched disease. And it's slow. Mm -hmm. it's, and, and grief lingers. Um, and, and grief lingered with your mom. Your father, if my memory is correct, you got that you're on holiday and you found mm -hmm. the new, you know. And, but with your mom, it was more of a slow. And obviously, with your brother dealing with this insidious, insidious disease, you've, uh -huh. you've witnessed that. What are some of the burdens of grief that it stirred up by this, this loss of your parents' life? You know, this, one of the things about grief is that we often associate it with the act of, uh, of a death. And I really think that grief begins way before that. Tell me more. Um, so with, uh, with my brother, where you could you could see the outcome. We all knew how this mm. was going to end, and so you grieve that. You grieve that uh, oh. he, he wasn't going to 
see grandchildren. You grieve that uh, his his daughter was, um, you know, going to live with. Um, these were her final memories, you know. So, um, and and with my parents, you know, you just start to grieve the um, the the loss of what parents represent, you know, that uh, that they were often. It, Actually, it wasn't the case for me, but for a lot of people, they are the people that you look to for wisdom and for comfort and things like that. That they, they did not represent that for me. But um, uh, but that's that loss or the knowledge that this is going to be lost that begins way before they actually die. And so, grief is this. Um, I think it's just this long process of of coming to terms with. Um, Sometimes the death of a myth of of who someone is or who someone was. Um, I I grieve that as much as I grieve the actual loss. I I think when I realized this is this is going to sound like your um, one of your therapy sessions probably, but I think when I realized that my parents were actually not a source of comfort and wisdom and leadership for me, I was a very young person. I think I grieved that. Absolutely. So, so, you know, you, you, you grieve what you wish for, what you hope for. Oh, um, so true. Right. And so it isn't just associated with um, the actual death of a person. Grief is so much more nuanced than it just loss of life. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I appreciate the picture you're painting, uh, the grief, a loss of expectations, the loss of mm-hmm. needs, the loss of what's supposed to be. Yeah. Um, sometimes just safety and nurturing. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. That that's, thank you for, thank you for sharing those images. And I I'd like to transition then to think, to have you share how some of these experiences with deep grief have impacted how you lead in your work as a journalist, you wear many hats. You're a journalist, a journalism professor. You're actually the university department head. I believe that's, I don't know your official T- titles shift. I don't know. I, dir- I, I direct the program. I direct, direct the, the journalism program. program. There we go. Direct the journal. We got to get those things yeah, right. That's right. Um, but but you have a lot of responsibility, and there's a lot of hats you wear. How has how have your ex- deep ex- experiences with deep grief impacted you in those roles as journalist and professor and director? No, that's a, that's a great question. So so let me give you an example of I was one of the first reporters to the house in Rancho Santa Fe, where 39 uh, people killed themselves as part of this group called Heaven's Gate. So I was working for the New York Times. And, um, you know, some of my colleagues in journalism, this is going to sound like a real surprise, some of them were fairly heartless um, Mm. and just treated what had happened there um, as just sort of this freakish, thing and what a bunch of nutcases and, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, I, I just couldn't. I just couldn't. I, uh, I was very, very bothered by this. And um, uh, I was troubled. I, 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 in part because I didn't want to just perpetuate that these guys are nuts. You know, they were joining a, an invisible spaceship behind the Hale-Bopp comet. Really? Um, on the one hand, you just look at that and just say, oh, these guys are crazy. And on the other hand, you want to say, but they believed something. They believed mm-hmm. something that no one could see. 
And they were sons, they were brothers, they were uncles, you know, all of that. And so I was just, I don't know, I was just kind of lamenting um, not only that I thought they were delusional, but also this was a loss for somebody. Um, And I, I just couldn't get past that. The other thing and this is, this is what really put me in an existential funk for a very, very, very long time, um, was that it made me think, I'm not all that different from them for, okay. for, for these reasons. I believe in something you can't see. Uh. You know, there, I'm, a, I'm a, a person of Christian faith. Uh, I believe in a loving and merciful and forgiving God. Well, I don't know. Do you see that? I, I believe in someone who came back to life. Well, that's that's pretty nutty, Rebecca. That that <laughs> is little, it's, out, it's out there. Yeah, and 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 what what just what just dropped me right into the abyss was um, one night I was putting my son to bed, and um, I forget how old he was. I'm, I'm guessing he was probably around ten, and. Um, I had been out at the house uh, where all these guys died uh, all day, and I'd been interviewing people, interviewing neighbors, interviewing law enforcement people, interviewing psychiatr- psychologists and psychiatrists, interviewing cult um, you know, experts, all of this. And um, my wife and I have this practice or had this practice when our kids were little. We would just sit on the edge of their bed and just kind of tickle their backs and just talk about the day and talk about what was the best part of the day. And... Uh, my, and so my son uh, was at an age where he would kind of turn the tables a little bit and say, well, what did you do today? And what was the best <laughs> part of your, today, your day? And I said, well, I was still working on this story. And so he wanted to know a little more. But I'm thinking, he's just about to go to sleep. Do I really want to fill his head with 39 guys died to join a spaceship? So I just gave him a little glimpse of these these guys died and he wanted to know more and he's very curious he's very smart and um you know i'm not gonna lie to him i'm not gonna lie to him but um um when i finally told him in a very summary kind of manner of what had happened you you just kind of picture this he's laying on his stomach i have my my hand inside his his shirt just tickling his back just trying to get him to relax and just talking to him while this is going on and he just (laughs) leans up on one elbow and looks at me and says, how could anybody be so stupid? Oh, wow. And on the one hand, I understand his question. But on the other hand, I just felt like that was just a knife in my own intellect and in my own faith and in my own, my own spirit, because I just thought, you know, I'm that stupid. And so that just put me on this, in this pretty significant funk of, how am I any different as a Christian than a Heaven's Gate person? And that that put me on a, a pretty um, interesting journey. And um, and this is going to sound weird, but I finally wrote my way out of it because I just thought, as a as a writer, the only way I know how to deal with these things is to is to just try to hang some language on it. So finally, you know, but it was it was a couple of weeks of of dark. And and and. How did, what was, what, where was grief in that? What were you, what, how did grief show up in that for you? How would you concretize that? You know, I, for me, I think it was grief on behalf of these people. It wasn't grief uh. for me personally, but I knew 
this was creating all sorts of grief. I mean, I was interviewing family members. I was interviewing people that this, this kind of thing just triggered other stuff, you know? And, um, and so I was, I was seeing their grief and I, you know, I've interviewed plenty of people who have lost family members. Um, um, and you, you just, you just go home at the end of that day and grieve with them. They don't know who you are, but you, you, you just carry that with them. So I, I, I just mm-hmm. kind of felt it on behalf of them. Dean, I'm just struck by this early practice of consenting to feel with mm-hmm. um, early on and connecting and, and also this commitment to not dehumanize or detach. Yeah. <clears throat> you could have armored up and, and protected like your colleagues, which is understandable when you're facing really hard things that it's, it's a, a powerful protector mm-hmm. and you chose to feel. Yeah. And that means feeling the loss of life, even though the why is wackadoo on the surface, right? You saw these as human beings that were wanting something different in life and connected with them and connected that to your own story. And then that led you to a funk. Yeah. And and really, really consent to the confusion too, because it created a tremendous amount of just personal and intellectual and spiritual confusion in my own life. You said you wrote your way through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, where did you land on the other side of that, that chapter? As you work through that, what as you were writing, what did, what uh, what where did the writing take you? I, I wanted to I wanted to explore how or if my Christian faith was any different, other mm. than I'm not killing myself. You know, uh, was any different from these Heaven's Gate people? So I just tried to write about uh, the similarities and the differences. So I did my own little kind of compare contrast uh, thing and. You know, this is going to sound self-serving, but but um, ultimately, I wrote something that I thought, you know what? I think I think I've I've got something worth sharing with the world, and so mm-hmm. I sent it to a magazine, and uh, it's a magazine called Christianity Today, and they published it, and um, and it created all sorts of really good um, dialogue with others, and I still use it sometime sometimes in my classes. Just to say, rather than just dismiss these people as freaks, let's acknowledge we have a lot in common. And and you think about it, it, it anybody that we just dismiss as freaks or as non-others or that we other, you know, people, whether they're immigrants or whether they're politicians or whether they're law enforcement. when Or journalists. Or journalists, thank you. Um, uh, when we um, look beyond the the labels and the freakishness and all that stuff and say actually they're motivated by very very similar things i'm motivated by by a desire for some sort of transcendent um experience whether it's love or um or mercy or 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 whatever um i'm motivated by that so were these guys now it manifests itself differently but oh yeah you know um but we had we had a few things in common. I just keep coming back to daring to feel. Yeah, that's you're you're committing to feel with and and move through that, and that is a powerful practice with navigating grief, um, which is one of the mother of all the emotions, yeah. um, and, and being human and your own humanity. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. Um, I want to shift. We touched a little bit on your role as as a journalist too, mm-hmm. and, and there's. 
gosh, there's been so much going on. I'm my undergrad degree was in journalism, and um, I knew I liked you for a reason, Rebecca. <laughs> from the sim- same same hometown, and uh, but yeah, I got my degree and more in public relations and advertising, but did my news ed. My professor in undergrad, his my news ed journalism prof's name was Bob Woodward. You're kidding. I kid you not. And he worked the Bob Woodward? at the same time as the other Bob Woodward for the other Washington paper. It wasn't the Post, but it was there was another paper which is now defunct. So there were two Bob Woodwards at the same time in D.C. Oh my God! Writing about the things, and he was my yeah. Might, I had have, the been other the, might have been the Washington Examiner at the time. I think that sounds right. Anyways, we digress. But I I think there's something also. I know I've even been grieving because I have such a respect for journalism. I remember taking journalism ethics and really just and and there this is an important part, but now it's it's been it's been trashed and tanked and minimized. And I'm I'm curious what impact the cultural attack on the journalism profession and the loss of trust in what we call the fourth estate has had on your professional identity. Yeah, it's a it's a great question. And um there's there's a part of me that says I, I can't get caught up with uh, what everybody wants to say about journalists just to advance their own political agenda. I can't get caught up in that. I'm not going to get into an argument that says, no, seriously, we're really important. There's what, <laughs> what, what I have to do and what I try to get across to our journalism students is just keep doing good journalism. And um and journalism, as, uh, as I try to teach it, good journalism, by definition, complicates your thinking. Okay. So it, it isn't going to be this sort of, uh, I'm going to just perpetuate this particular ideology or this stereotype or, or whatever. I am going, and I'm going to quote the other Bob Woodward, the, uh, the Washington Post Bob Woodward, um, he says what we do is what we we try to tell the best obtainable version of the truth at the time. Look at all those qualifiers that are in there. The best obtain best, not the only, but the best. So you have to do some evaluating. Obtainable, you got to work hard and get, you know, as many of these version, we're going to we, we're admitting up front, we aren't just telling you the truth. We're telling you the best obtainable version of the truth. And then you've got this one at the end at the time. So over time, if you keep doing good journalism, you're going to get a really good sense of what's going on. But if you just do these really quick hit things that just kind of keep inflaming and keep inciting and keep perpetuating dumb things that people say and do, um, that may be journalism, but it's not very good journalism. Well, it, it sounds like you're almost differentiating kind of when blogging came on and now blogging's been conflated with good journalism, right? Sure. I wrote a piece, right? Yeah. It's so, like op-eds yeah. on steroids mm-hmm. <laughs> everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and the art of really what it means to like the to get the best attainable information at the time is not efficient. It's hard work. It takes an intellectual practice. It, it's it's not easy. And we discover things we may not like. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe even like that, maybe even go against our own personal grain. So, it, but it involves critical thinking. And that's it involves. It, it, <laughs> yeah. It involves complexity. It involves nuance. And it's, and if, if you aren't 
if you aren't used to complexity and nuance and you just want somebody to, to tell you something that you already agree with, well, th- then, then that isn't really journalism. I, that's propaganda. And, um, and so, okay. so if, if um, what, what, what I try to get the students to think about and, and obviously practice in my own uh, uh, journalism work is um, not just going for the easy source, the easy quote, whatever, but making the extra phone call, taking the extra um, uh, effort and, and complicating somebody's thinking. For this reason, Rebecca, it, it, it's an informed society is the only way it works. It's the only way it works. And if you don't have an informed society, then you have a society that is easily manipulated, easily uh, driven by fear, uh, easily um, uh, swayed. And so um, one of the distinctions I try to make is when people talk about the news media are all biased or the news media are all against this party or that party. And um, when you really peel this back, and I've had a conversation with somebody in our Sunday school class just recently on this very thing that says that this is the news media. Their only job is to incite people into hating um, our president. That's 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 their job. And so he and I had a phone call and uh, and I just thought this is this is worth uh, this is worth exploring a little bit. And um, what we finally came down to was so much of what is on television, especially television, but also social media, um, isn't what I would call journalism. It is speculation. It is predictions. It is opinions. And if you can, if you can separate that from what is somebody actually telling you what is happening in Kenosha, Wisconsin right now, if somebody can just tell me what's happening, that's not inciting. That's informing. But if you add then three hours of people saying, yeah, it's because they hate the police or because they hate the government or they hate God or they hate whatever, that, that's actually not journalism. That's, that's opinion. And it's propaganda. And it is uh, just trying to whip people into enough fear that they'll stay tuned so that you'll watch these commercials and you'll watch these ads. It's, it's, it's not even, I don't even think it's because they want to be in power. I think it's just because uh, it's a business. And so if, so if we can, if we can separate what we mean by news media from all the shouting, we'll actually be much better informed. Yes, I agree. And it takes a lot of effort and a lot of relationship and a lot of curiosity. Um, and that's that's a stretch for a lot of people right now. And I think as someone who does trauma-informed work clinically and in the leadership space, that means connecting. If we're going to listen to what's happening in Kenosha, as we're recording this interview, um, there are riots and protests happening in one of our neighbor states, Wisconsin, where we grew up. And even last night, our hometown was on a 6 p.m. curfew mm-hmm. um, in Minneapolis. Um, according to my Facebook feed with all my high school friends, mm-hmm. they're like, all right. We're locking down again. Um, And that means feeling. And if we choose to feel like you did when you went into the scene of those that suicided Mm -hmm. with the hope of of having 
this incredible experience that went south, you chose to connect instead of disconnect and dehumanize. Right, right. right. And to me, good journalism helps us be trauma-informed and it requires work on our part to connect with, even if we disagree. And I learned in politics, the number one emotion that gets people to vote is fear. Sure. And I saw that in advertising when I worked in advertising too. That, that, we, work, that works in religion too, by the way. Oh, that's a whole nother <laughs> podcast interview. <laughs> but we're seeing these conflate actually yeah. right now mm-hmm. with using something that's dear to both of us um, and weaponizing mm-hmm. journalism, weaponizing faith um, and weaponizing community. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot happening. And so we are both, we, we've referenced, we're both from Minneapolis. Um, I grew up in a suburb called Bloomington. R- remind me where you grew up. I grew up in South sub- Minneapolis, actually just a South couple miles from where George Floyd was killed. Okay. So you, yeah. So you know that area really well. I do. Um, and, and obviously our love of hockey was nurtured. My kids are still not as interested. I think I'm just going to bring Holden. I'm like, you need I told him I, I tried. I don't think he's impressed by the fact I was a hockey cheerleader, which probably sounds like not like weird. No, but I have like, respect for hockey cheerleaders. To, toe jumps on ice skates—that's yep. a feat. Yep. Um, that's all, and doing mounts. But um, yep. but it was it was kind of one of the religions where we grew up. I mean, our team won state a couple of years, so I was at state. So that's Impressive. a big part of my story. But and as you're referencing, is the recent epicenter of that launched an important and essential reckoning on our individual and on are on individual racism and reflecting on that and systemic racism. So waking up to our own racism can unleash a lot of emotions, including grief. I know that's been a part of me dealing with another level of waking up to the waves of grief and how I've been complicit um, and not aware. How has has grief shown up as you rumble with anti-racism in your own life and in our country? Yeah, I, I mean, for one thing, I just look around um, my friend group and say, what, what, uh, what color is the skin of all of my friends? And that's, that's fairly damning, you know? Um, and, uh, and so how do I expect to relate to or, or not judge a particular experience or someone's claim if, if I don't even know anybody who has lived through this? Now it, it isn't, it isn't, Completely that way. I mean, um, we have we have some students who we look to at um, at my university and and just say, okay, help me, help me. But even that's exhausting because they don't want to be yep. the the spokesperson for their entire race, you know. Um, and so I, it just shows it it has shown my own flaws. The 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 racial um, unrest has shown my own flaws in um, the the circles I run in, in um, and my lack of being intentional, really, of um, of being more involved in uh, the lives of people who aren't like me. So I I feel I feel like I've got I've got some work to do. What does that work look like to you right now? It's a little tougher in a quarantine. Just a little, <laughs> you know, but. Um, and, and again, I'm, I'm aware that this may sound very uh, like I'm just trying to let myself off the hook, but I have been much more uh, intentional toward uh, the neighbors in my neighborhood who are brown and black um, and uh, chat with them and um, 
in those nonverbal ways of engagement where you, I think you can communicate, um, I'm, I'm, I, I want to be your neighbor. You know, I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to be seen as as an adversary, and so I'm going to go across the street and I'm going to talk to you. And I'm going to. I mean, I'll give you an example of um, of something that happened a few years ago. Uh, we have a neighbor right across the street from us who's uh, the family is black and um, they have a large fence, and it's uh, it's not one of it, it, it's just a wooden fence where. Um, you know, these slats, but there aren't any gaps between the slats. And on Christmas morning, I looked out my kitchen window and someone had spray painted this guy's fence with something really, really offensive. And um, and so I just kind of looked at that for a little while and thought about, OK, I, that that's not OK. And so I went out to my garage and um, started to gather some stuff. And by the time I opened my garage door, he was already out there. And he was, uh, my neighbor was, was trying to scrub this off. So I just went across the street and scrubbed it with him. This is on Christmas morning. And, um, you know, we small talked. We didn't talk about big issues. We didn't talk about systemic racism. It was just two neighbors trying to remove the hate, you know, from, uh, from his fence. And, um, and all I could do was say, I'm sorry, Mr. Brown, I'm sorry. And um, and that actually kind of endeared the two of us to each other. And we stayed in very close uh, contact and friendship until he uh, died just recently. Yeah, I remember you've shared that. I remember when you shared that, um, you know, just two neighbors connecting, trying to remove the hate. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if I can only come up with that example, that tells you I don't have many examples. So when you say, what does that look like for you? Um that's pretty, that's pretty unsatisfying as I, as I think about it. We need more examples in our life. I know for me, it started with a lot of reading and a lot of learning Mm -hmm. um, and slower is faster (laughs) in this process. Um, But it takes a lot. It it is, it is, it does mean connecting with grief though. Yeah. When we really listen to and read stories of what I've not even been aware of. And we grew up in a bubble, like we were in the bubble of bubbles. A very white um, bubble. I mean, I was in Bloomington, mm-hmm. so probably even more bubbly mm-hmm. than you. I don't know <laughs> at the time. Um, and and so what I thought, this is so much of what I thought and what I was taught and unlearning involves a lot of grief to me. I, I think that's and, true. I, I'll give you one other example of how I, I, I have seen this season, especially talking about race, manifest in a really interesting way. My daughter, who you know, um, uh, contacted my my wife and me uh, just maybe a month or so ago and said, you know, I've been participating in these Black Lives Matter marches in Los Angeles and uh, I've been getting involved. And she said, and I'm realizing I, I don't know very much. And she said, so I've been kind of digging into it and, and, and all. And I thought, in a non-threatening, non-accusing way, I want to contact my high school in San Diego, my high school English teachers, and say, you know, we, I could have been a lot better prepared for this had I read some literature from uh, right. James Baldwin or Henry Louis Gates or, who, you know, um, Alice Walker or some of those folks. And she said, so can you help me kind of think through what should we have read? And so maybe I could make these suggestions 
to my old high school that would maybe be more inclusive and uh, do what literature does, which is really connect you to the, to the much bigger story of humanity. And um, so this was just, a, it was a marvelous back and forth between um, Marsha and me and, and with our daughter of coming, to get, coming up with a reading list. And so she sent this to, I forget who, in the San Diego Unified School District and immediately got a phone call nice. from one of the administrators saying, we talk, talk to us about this. You know, we, what was your experience and how can we do better? So it wasn't this real defensive, hey, come on, we, we did the best we could at the time. They just said, no, you're, you're, you're going to help us here. So um, who knows? That's kind of the long view of saying, you know, our, our, our high school students, part of the canon of what they ought to be reading should be uh, voices that are a little more diverse. And I think she may have, uh, she may have contributed to that. And, you know, and it's a powerful way to use our privilege, right? So often people of color um, have been saying this for years and not listened to. Mm -hmm. And so it's using our privilege to help equate that change um, because that's not the first time that's, I have no doubt that that message has been given to the district. Um, But if we get to can help equate change in that area, that's the way to use it. So thanks for, thank you for sharing. That's one of the ways, one of the many, many ways to use it. One of the ways. Um, I want to circle back as we wrap up here. Um, you shared something with me, one of probably the one of the last times that we met in person in Sunday school before this lockdown, which is wild. It's been over six months at the recording of this. The longest um, year ever. You talk about you know your chronic your struggle with migraines, yeah. and have mentioned also been, been in PT working on some chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I often see our, our bodies hold our pain, sure. hold our grief. Sure. Um, and you shared this truth bomb, like I, it stuck with me, that, that your physical therapist shared with you when she was working with you about your body and your pain. Can you, can you share what she said and how that's, what that started in you, especially around grief and loss? Um, I, I'm not sure I remember exactly. It, it either had to do with um, storing tension in my muscles or, um, or the rotator cuff issue with, with my shoulder. Which, which one are you referring to? I, there was around the tension and around what you were holding on to because she was kind of challenging you. Oh, she, yeah, and she does. Yeah, every time I go see her, she just she just challenges me. I um, I so appreciate her her knowledge and her uh, ability to just cut through the cut through the the crap. Um, so she said she said um, you come across looking so calm and like you don't have a care in the world. But she said. I'll tell you where all your cares are. And she just grabbed one part of the back of my leg. And she said, you're storing it all right. And the more she worked on my, uh, I, I had had a hamstring problem because I'm still playing hockey and stuff. And so I've, um, so both these hamstrings and shoulders and stuff. Um, but she started working in there and she said, this isn't about hockey. This is about where you're carrying your tension and your, um, and your cares. And, and, uh, I, she even said, you're, you're dealing with some grief. Um, and you know, I'm just howling at the moon as she is just working this (laughs) stuff out. And, um, and I, I personally, I'll say this even to you as a therapist, I don't feel like I'm repressing this stuff. I don't feel like I'm burying it. Uh, it's, it's, 
in fact, I, if you were to ask me if I do that, I'd say, no, that's why I exercise. So I can get all that out. And she's saying, uh-uh, it's all right here. And, uh, yeah. and, and the other thing with the shoulder, which I think is just as profound, um, because it's, um, it's, it addresses the grief issues. It addresses um, all sorts of other stuff is she was working on my shoulder. I've got a rotator cuff problem. And, um, and I didn't want to get surgery. I still don't want to get surgery. And so I figured I'm going to do it this way. And um, she's working on it. And finally, she gets down right, you know, I'm laying on my back, my face is in this pillow or whatever. And uh, she gets right down next to my ear and says, you're going to have to let me have this. Wow. That has stayed with me. I mean, that happened a couple of years ago. And it has stayed with me that even in physical therapy, there's consent, yeah, right? And even in emotional therapy, in spiritual therapy, there's consent. Yes. You, have, you have a role to play in, are you going to let this go? Or are you going to keep resisting and, yeah. um, and fighting and, mm-hmm. and, and keeping it? And that it's, it's just one of those things where I'm not consciously saying, no, you can't have my shoulder. No, you can't. I'm not consciously saying, but my body, is, you know, and so I've got to trust her enough. And, um, and I have to look at the other side of the pain that this is causing. There was one time I told her this recently where I just thought um, she's going to break. She's going to break my shoulder. And here's the thing that was so weird is I just thought, well, she knows what she's doing. And it Wow. And, I, and I didn't even, I didn't resist it. I didn't say, stop. I just thought, you're going to break this. But I, uh, I think you know what you're doing. I told her that a few months uh, later. And she goes, oh, my gosh, you trusted me that much. And I, <laughs> and I said, yeah. But you trusted yourself to be able to tolerate That's that, true. too. That you could, yeah. To move that. that you were like, okay, here we are. Yeah. This is, I got to move through this. Because mm-hmm. your sister, your body, our bodies hold the stuff that we don't have words for right so when we have this stuff come up it and it will always win it will always win we can't think our way right. through our grief which is through our pain which is why i think i used to have a lot of migraine i don't i don't uh, i don't have as many i don't have nearly as many as i used to I have, oh i'm so glad to hear yeah, that i have maybe one or two a year and and That's still a lot. <laughs> uh, well not not compared to what it used to be um and, and then for a while, I, I didn't have any for a, a couple of years, but um, I used to get them more frequently. But I think it, I think the migraines were manifestations of the very thing you were just saying, which is these are things that I'm holding on to. And in my case, it's going to come out in the form of um, the blood vessels in my brain are, are finally just saying we're we're about to explode here. Yeah, migraines, IBS, mm-hmm. chronic fatigue. Mm-hmm. Those are when I see one or more of those in folks. It's like, okay, we've got trauma and grief and pain that needs to be released. And it's so hard for people to connect to mm-hmm. if they're like, no, I'm fine. But like, your body's saying no, and we're going to shut you down till you pay attention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so as we wrap up here, how would you describe your relationship with grief today, especially with the backdrop of so much collective grief with, with COVID and economics, strain, political, social, so much grief. What is your relationship with grief today? Yeah, um, that it is, um, it's part of the deal. It's it's part of who we are. It's part of our society and, and we can't pretend that it's not. Um, but I think there are some things 
some healthy things you can actually do with it. For instance, I'm going to circle back just for a second to uh, the situation with my mom. So you mentioned, you know, that I went through this writer's symposium thing soon after um, she died. I hadn't been able, because of the symposium, I hadn't been able to actually give language to what I was thinking or feeling or anything. So a, a little while after the symposium, Marsha and I rented a, a, a cabin up at uh, Truckee Lake. And, um, and in the morning, I would get up early and sit on, the, uh, sit on the deck of that cabin looking out over Lake Truckee. And I wrote in my journal, I wrote a series of letters to my mom. And um, no one's probably ever going to see those letters. But, um, but I, I wrote a series of letters to her about what life has been, um, especially in the, in the last few years, and then especially uh, with her dying. And um, I think there's healing in hanging language on, um, on something that can't be spoken of. You know, so I had this week of the symposium of I wanted to feel it. I wanted to experience it. I wanted to go into the cave with it. Um, and then when I got to Lake Truckee, then I was ready to poke the bear in that cave. And, um, and then, you know, all sorts of stuff came out. But um, so I didn't want to just leave the impression that I just embraced it, experienced it, all that. I remember what I said about Heaven's Gate. I had to write my way out of it. Um, I, I felt the same way about just kind of dealing with what is, what do I think about this? What do I feel about this? What, what do I want to say about this and, and give language to my heart and uh, to my head? So I, I just want to make sure I didn't leave you with the impression that after the end of the writer's symposium, yeah, everything was fine. No, I had to, I had to actually put something on paper. Oh, thank you for that. And, and, and really what I heard is I was just curious how you were showing up in the moment with this sudden loss and so many people would just keep going and again you're intentional you went to a space to poke the bear of really excruciating emotion that also can cleanse and make so clear what matters and what doesn't that's what i value about grief as much as i really don't enjoy feeling it and i could see i could even see the flash of emotion go through you as you were sharing just even remembering writing those letters. Like I get to see you, even though our listeners yeah. can't. Um, it was, it and, was serious. It was profound. It was, it was uh, cathartic. It was, uh, it was healing. And grief is not something that's done. That's oh, one of, of the not. things that I think was taught incorrectly. Mm-hmm. It, when you have loss, whether it's a loss of life or an ambiguous or vicarious loss of an experience, a season, an expectation. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is a part of daring to love and daring to care is going to be if, if you're feeling lost that means you were living a brave life because you dared to love and care yeah and, and the measure of your grief really is the measure of how much you loved and um so those those two things really are part of the same experience absolutely absolutely and you've really lived that i've, I've got to see that um on a personal level sitting in sunday school class and listening and learning and that space is a spiritual practice of, of me <laughs> checking myself, but also sitting with emotions like grief and connecting with other people's stories. So I, I just, I'm so, so 
humbled and grateful that oh, you took the time yeah. to do this interview today. I, you're a very important person to my family, to well, me, and to our community and beyond. And I, I think our listeners are going to really benefit from hearing you share your experiences with grief and and so much more. So thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. And I really admire what you're doing. I, I, I think um, you have a much more measurable outcome as a therapist sometimes than I do as a journalist. Um, so I'm, I, I really do admire um, how your your own intentional entering into another person's world and, and trying to help them, um, just trying to accompany them as they, as they go through stuff. That's, that's a pretty important role in our world, especially now. So it's mutual. Thank you. Thank you. If more people have the skills and the innate ability when you can show up like you do in your work and life to feel through it, whether I do that with people through psychotherapy or through leadership work, then I know the world is going to be able to be more connected uh-huh. and a domino effect of that is that going to be that the domino effect of that is going to be profound and exactly what our world needs yeah, right now. Yeah, so thank you, for, you. thank you for modeling that. Yeah, well, thank you too. Daring to be all in and live a brave life means grief and loss are a part of the gig. Fact. You can avoid it, numb it, distract from it, or you can respect and consent to grief doing what it does best, cleansing often painfully like hydrogen peroxide and making crystal clear what and who matters and what does not need your priority focus. Contrary to many teachings, there are no time limits or ending points to the many kinds of loss. Yeah, and this can feel scary to your internal system, which is always striving to make sure you continue to function and move through all the many things you have on your plate these days. Dean taught us that consenting to grief does not always take you out, but it can allow you to still show up and lead with even more tenderness and compassion. He shared powerful experiences on how consenting to grief brought him more clarity, more empathy, and made him more aligned to his core values. Where do you need to consent to grief in your life? What are your biggest fears around feeling through grief? And how can consenting to grief be a positive leadership practice in your work and life? The world needs you to be all in with your life and work. Daring to consent to feel through grief is one of the powerful practices that will help you show up by helping you heal. Consenting to and respecting grief is a non-negotiable if you're going to be all in with how you lead. When you avoid consenting to and respecting your grief, you're pushing back on your courage along with your capacity to move through vulnerability. This leads to less risks. This leads to being led more by fear. And this leads to connecting falls and failures to your safety and your worthiness. Now, as a leader who is all in, you know grief well. You know it never gets easier to move through. And as a result, the nagging fears and doubts that impact your relationship with grief and loss keep showing up who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you from consenting and respecting grief and loss. Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and also aligned. 
when the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then unburdened leader coaching is for you where you can deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, grief and loss, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your unburdened leader coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to work with me at RebeccaChang.com.